Hey, this is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, microplastic fibers in our drinking water, in our food, falling from the air, cause for concern, good old-fashioned sleep, and how it makes our brain more plastic, and Israeli apartheid, an eminent academic says it's real. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. We're used to thinking of terrorism, climate change, poverty, and global economic development as big political issues. But to turn the old 60s saying around, the political is also personal Global crises deeply affect ordinary people's health. Heart disease, cancer, cholera, malaria, typhoid fever are easy to spot and treat. Poor mental health is largely invisible. Over 300 million people around the world suffer from clinical depression, and the number is reportedly rising. According to the World Health Organization, depression is, quote, the leading cause of disability worldwide, and a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease, unquote. Not surprisingly, compelling evidence suggests that depression, anxiety, and other affective disorders are exacerbated by climate change, particularly in the global south. The Indian Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine reports higher rates of suicide, violence, and post-traumatic stress disorder linked to natural disasters extreme heat, drought, and displacement. While mainstream media report on property damage, injuries, and death, the countless individuals who sink into depression, many never to surface, remain largely invisible. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. I woke up this morning And I was in an awful mood I woke up this morning And I was in an awful mood I was broken hungry And I didn't know what to do It's a terrible old thing When you're in this world all alone It's a terrible old thing When you're in this world all alone When you ain't got no friends And no place to call your own So tired I could cry I could lay right down and die So tired I could cry I could lay right down and die I'm one unlucky person 
Please somebody tell me why Give me food, give me strength So I can make just one more day Give me food, give me strength So I can make just one more day If I live and nothing happens You give it, I'll be here to stay I'm in an awful mood T-Bone Walker They are ubiquitous Everywhere Microplastics Tiny little plastic fibers Evenly distributed over Earth's surface the ultimate expression of humanity's plastic addiction. Plastic microfibers were found in 83% of tap water samples in a study by the U.S. NGO Orb Media. From two to five fibers per half liter of tap water in Europe and the U.S. respectively. They're in beer, wine, food. They're in the air we breathe. Those warm fleeces we love to wear release them in the billions with each machine wash, plastic microbeads are present in a multitude of consumer products. Then there are plastic nanoparticles, possibly able to enter cells. What's all this microscopic plastic doing to our health? I spoke with Chris Tyree, a journalist with Orb Media, the news organization based in Washington, D.C., that carried out the study. Can you tell me what, what are microfibers, plastic microfibers and microbeads? Right. So microbeads would be small plastic beads that are manufactured as such. They were, they were, they've been used for a number, of, a number of different applications from cosmetics to lotions, uh, creams, that just, you know, like anti-aging creams, things like that. They were actually, uh, they actually had a, a maybe a more holistic purpose, I think, originally, and how they might be able to be used to deliver medicine. Uh, you know, the smaller the particle, uh, the more surface area it has. And, uh, and so these things are very good at, at absorbing, you know, like chemotherapy, and so they were used to get into certain places where maybe other medicines couldn't deliver chemotherapy. So they have an interesting history. Uh, not all bad. Uh, and so that's microbeads. Now, microfibers would be coming off of any synthetic clothing. You know, we've been making and wearing synthetic clothing for, well, you know, polyester suits and, and all over the range in, what, the 50s and 60s maybe. And But we've been wearing polyester. We've been having, we've had synthetic clothing for almost 100 years now. And, and then, you know, with the advent of fleece, uh, beautiful product, keeps you nice and warm. But these fibers, when they, when these synthetic garments, when they get washed, release these fibers into the wash. Uh, some estimates, some studies suggest, up to a million, um, a million tons into the wash, into the water globally every year. A million tons. And so there, that's a tremendous amount of, of these little plastic fibers that are less than five millimeters in size. Now, that's just sort of the micro. You know, once you get, you can go even further down to the nanoscale, which 
is, is an area that we're continuing to, to research and, um, and report on. So these microfibers, uh, these microfibers, Chris, and microbeads, these are, these are um, uh, bits of tiny bits of plastic that have been manufactured uh, at that size. These are not um, particles that are the, the product of larger plastic products that have undergone mechanical weathering over uh, the course of decades or hundreds of years and are now circulating in the environment? That's correct. Those are, so we, in our story, we, besides you know, really focusing on the issue of how do, these, how do these microfibers end up in our water, we're further looking at all the different sources of microplastic pollution. And, you know, what you were saying is correct. That's, that's, one, that's another source is the degradation of larger plastics in the marine environment. And even in even in the natural on land, even though that takes a little bit longer, um, you know. But then there's some other sources too, like tires from cars and the amount of tire dust. A Norwegian study thought, you know, suggested that there's probably more dust from tires uh, being released into the environment than any other thing. Um, not quite sure. You know, there's a lot of different studies, and, and nothing's. But you know, it is a huge other, uh, source. Um, so what did your what what were the results of of your of your survey of tap water? Right. So we we sampled 159 samples. We found around the United States. No, around the world. Um, we it was 14 countries on five continents. I think I said 15 countries earlier, but it's 14 countries on five continents that we sampled originally. We've since gone back and sampled a few others with some publishing partners that will be updating soon, but. Um, of that 159, and then we also, I should add, we also sampled three different uh, leading U.S. bottled waters. And all three of those had microfibers in them, as well as 83% of the 159 we sampled. And the U.S. had the highest contamination rate, like 94% of tap water samples collected in the United States were contaminated with plastic fibers. Correct. Um, and, and, what, and what's like in a glass of water, in an average glass of water, I would imagine up here in Canada, it's probably much the same thing. How, how many fibers are there in an average glass of water? Well, it depended on the, you know, the average density, I believe, for all of the samples was uh, four, a little over four fibers per liter. So it's not a ton. But, you know, we, we should keep in mind that these are microfibers. There are other particles there as well that we just, without the right instrumentation, it's hard to just exactly tell what they were. Um, we are going to be going down uh, on our next survey to studying much smaller uh, micron size. And so hopefully we'll be able to, to test some of these other particles that we've seen to see if they are plastic too. Now, what's the concern, Chris? Are, uh, one would imagine plastic, these little plastic particles, uh, microfibers, nano, nanoparticles are inert. Uh, you know, do they, is there a health effect associated with drinking these things? Well, you know, the scientists will say that more research needs to be done on that. There just haven't been, um, there, there's been really no human study of the health effects uh, of microplastics. They do know, they have done studies on that looking at how it affects certain animals, like, say, mussels, um, and, and how long those might stay in their, you know, inside their, their bodies. Um, 
before they're released back out. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, scientists also know that when these studies have been done where because of the large surface area of these uh, microplastics, they are very good at absorbing and adsorbing contaminants, so anything that they might come in contact with. Now, we know some of these plastics are made with, you know, types of plasticizers and things that are that are toxic, that are harmful. Like phthalates. Exactly. Um, and so, but what, you know, when you add to that, say, these, these pieces of plastic coming in contact with runoff from pesticides or herbicides or, uh, you know, PCBs are still in the environment. They are very good at absorbing those, and then those get released pretty easily through the gut. Through uh, again, you know, science is still way out there on this. Uh, a lot more needs to be done. There was a very interesting article, actually, that came out this week about a study on fish and nanoplastics and how those have entered the brain and have caused certain brain, uh, you know, mental problems for these fish. So I think think there's a lot of possibility for research now. We know we're getting these into our body. We're getting them into – they're in something that's – we need to live and we're drinking it. We have to drink, you know, multiple liters a day and um, to stay alive. One of the most astonishing things that I've, I've I read is that uh, much of these, these plastic particles are coming down, landing in water uh, from the air. So these particles are suspended in the atmosphere and they're coming down. Right. I mean, they are. So they're in the natural environment. You know, a study in Paris showed that. Um, but, you know, they've been found in your average house. And when you look just at the dust, if you have wall-to-wall stain-free carpet or stain-free uh, furniture, like all of that is made with synthetic materials. And just walking across the carpet will start to shed those fibers and they will get in the air and they will become the dust that you breathe in and get in your drink or in your food that's laying on the table. We, are, we really are taking this in in multiple ways, from inhaling it to consuming it to imbibing it. And, and at a rate that's fairly alarming and certainly higher than anybody expected, um, we just don't know what the consequences are. Uh, feedback or repercussions from the, the release of your study, uh, Chris Tai? Um, is there a sense that... Uh, um, there's going to be some uh, some response or some public action. Uh, it's hard to imagine. Plastics are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. It's hard to imagine them being eliminated. Right. I mean, I think we, you know, we did the research and the plastic industry is has an economy, if you think about it, in sales about the size of, you know, it's like the, it would be like the 20th leading economy, you know, leading country. I mean, um, that didn't come out exactly right, but the, basically the, the amount of plastic sales globally is equal to the economy of uh, more than 20 countries. So it's not going away. It's it's very useful product. I think there, when you think about you know, what can we do, there are some people that are out there doing some amazing things. There's a, 
there is an idea that's really starting to take off about a, a circular plastic economy where people start to think about the design stage at the beginning. Uh, at the, I mean, the, the end of life at the design stage. So they're thinking about how it's going to end up, where's it going to be before they even design it. And, and I think if, you know, if, if we can continue that and we can pressure, you know, people pressure corporations to think that way, you know, one is they're going to have a cheaper, it'll be cheaper for them in the long run. And two, it'll keep plastic pretty much out of other places it doesn't need to be. And of course, there are a lot of different things people can do right now on their own just to limit their, uh, you know, their plastic addiction. You know, it's do we really need a straw when we drink a glass of water? Do we need um, uh, plastic bags? Can we use reusable bags? There are little things like that um, that we can do. It'll it'll make a little bit. It'll make a dent. It'll start to make a dent, but until we really embrace the fact that we've created something that is, you know, it is ubiquitous. We know it's, you know, a lot of it is toxic, and now we know that it's small enough to get into our bodies and deliver whatever's on it into us. Chris Tyree, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And my pleasure. Um, and fascinating story and we just really hope that uh, the people will give it a good read and, uh, and do what they can. Chris Tyree is a journalist with Orb Media, a global nonprofit news organization based in Washington, D.C. Conspiracy blues. I'll say that again. I got those plastic mass production. Nightmare conspiracy blues. You know, I almost get an ulcer every morning when I read the news. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought I had it worked out, but it turns out I was just confused. Well, I thought I had it worked out, but it turns out I was just confused. Look at all the boys and girls in the desert with the shiny war toys. You know, they're roaring to a war we should be trying harder to avoid. Well, politicians say, well, it's great for business and it's a place to send the unemployed. They're saying, well, it's great for business and it's a place to send the unemployed. I don't know if I agree. You know that every battle's over just as soon as it begins. Well, well, if a drop of blood is spilled, don't you know that nobody wins? Nobody wins, and poison gas will burn your lungs up. You a saint to be full of sins. Please don't let them burn my lungs out, mother. Please don't let them burn my lungs out, Joe. Please don't let them burn my lungs out of fire. Da 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 da
I don't want to melt in my chair. I don't want to lose my teeth and hair. I don't want to have kids or be spares in the war machine. The war machine. The CIA's digging tunnels underneath the underground. Well, and they creep out of your toilet when they're positive you're not around. They're writing coded lists in black books of all the things I think they should have found. Well, then they're put back on the scuba and swim back to the five-sided home. Well, I'm the only person here now, but I can't say that I feel alone. Cause they put LSD in my orange juice and a bug inside my telephone. Jeez, I don't drink too much of that orange juice. Let's forget the song. It lost in the world, 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 world. Well, they count the ring inside my bathtub and follow me everywhere I go. Well, they're wearing sunglasses and shiny shoes in the shadows on the tippy toes. Oh, I bet they've read these lyrics, in which case they probably know. Well, that I love you so much that I can't even say hello. I love you like a pony loves the green grass beneath the snow. I better hurry up and tell you before I'm drafted and I got to go. I sure won't fight for peace or for the interest rate of barrels of oil And I won't want to get tossed in that Middle Eastern cauldron when it starts to boil It sure would suck to kill a potential friend on the sand to see a sky or soil So I'm going to the country where I can hear the ice melt under the moon The ice melts under the moon Well, they can't send me letters then I can slumber in a down cocoon where I can stink to the stars and smile with the sun at noon. I got those plastic mass production American spirits and blues. I almost get an ulcer every morning when I read the news. Well, I thought I had it worked out, but it turns out I was just confused. Plastic mass production blues, Dan Weisenberger. We all know sleep is critical for survival, and a lack of it can have dire consequences. A good night's sleep certainly helps us function better during the day, but how exactly? Researchers are only now beginning to connect the dots between brain plasticity and the healing powers of sleep. Will Dormer has a problem. Can't sleep, Will? No, he can't. Dormer, a hard-boiled cop in the 2002 film Insomnia, can't fall asleep, and he's falling apart at the seams. Who's this? I got a nap this afternoon, but I guess you had to work. Detective Dormer, played by Al Pacino, has traveled to Alaska to catch a killer, played by Robin Williams. 
Drenched in 24 hours of sunlight, Dormer's clock is way out of whack, and he's finding it hard to function. A name or I'm going to hang up. No, you're not. You need the company. Nothing as lonely as not sleeping. Insomniacs are more than just lonely. Their brains are less flexible. A good night's sleep rewires gray matter and sheds chemical waste, boosting healthy brain activity in the day. For sleep to happen, night has to be dark and day bright. Patrice Bourgin studies the role of light and sleep regulation at the University of Strasbourg in France. The role of light in, uh, in sleep and, uh, is very well known uh, to entwine the sleep-wake system. Uh, you will develop some synaptic plasticity, so, so new connections between neurons, and you can eventually erase uh, neural circuits that you are not using so much. Sleep-wake cycling is controlled by a brain structure called the hypothalamus, with light input from the retina, and by the tiny pineal gland, which secretes the neurochemical melatonin. Together, they synchronize a host of clocks throughout the body. Food, for example, there is a, clock, uh, a food clock, and uh, we'd be hungry at certain time and less at other time. And melatonin is going to act also on this clock. Detective Dormer, line one. Dormer here. Oh, you're holding up. Can't be easy to keep working after three days of no sleep. <laughs> Will Dormer isn't holding up well at all. Dysfunctional insomniacs like Will Dormer may be referred to a sleep lab. This is the control room. At, at night, this is where the techs sit and, you know, observe the people sleeping. Dana Jewell is a technologist at the Sleep Disorder Lab at Toronto's Sunnybrook Hospital. Every day, Dana pours over digital recordings of patients sleeping or tossing and turning in the next room. So we have brain waves, eye movements, uh, ECG, sleep stages, respiratory events, limb movements, uh, anything that the doctor would need to make the diagnosis. That doctor would likely be Brian Murray, director of Sunny Brooks Sleep Clinic. Sometimes the problem is chronic. More often, a person's lifestyle is to blame. Eating too close to bedtime, uh, not having a dark, quiet room. So light uh, activates the retinal hypothalamic tract in the brain. So if you're you know, looking at a light source, a computer screen up close, it's sending a signal to your brain to wake up the opposite of what you want. It's the transformative powers of sleep that amaze Murray the most. Sleep helps restore damaged brains. Synaptic organization uh, changes in sleep so dramatically. Uh, people who have had a, a stroke, for example, when they're recovering, there's you know other areas of the brain that could participate in that neural network that, that helps you move your arm again properly or speak. Uh, lousy sleep will, will impair that recovery. Um, so the, you know, the idea is, so what, what could we do to optimize that recovery through improving sleep? Are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. No, I haven't, no. Everyone knows that wasted feeling the day after a crummy night's sleep. Researchers are only beginning to understand the extent of the damage insomnia can cause. Fragmented sleep may amplify the effect of the Alzheimer's gene, for example. On the other hand, by promoting natural brain plasticity, solid sleep may stave off dementia, epilepsy, and neurodegenerative disease. An average of eight hours of sleep each night is more than just restorative. It's crucial for healthy brain function, especially as you grow old. I'm Dave Kattenberg.
dream Just a dream I had on my mind It was a dream Just a dream I had on my mind Well, I woke up this morning Not a thing could I find Just a dream I had on my mind Yes, I woke up this morning Not a chair could I find Well, I did nothing white out I sent him a dancing chair I did to shake my right head Oh, I'm glad you did but one dream Just a dream I had on my mind Yes, I woke up this morning. Not a chair could I find. Now play for you. Play with me, boy. Just a Dream I Had on My Mind from an album called Beale Street Mess Around. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. The senior correspondent for Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC's Neil MacDonald, put it perfectly recently in an opinion piece at CBC's website. If it looks like a duck, MacDonald began, launching into an essay about the rising acceptance of the Israeli apartheid idea, then it probably is a duck. MacDonald's essay sparked predictable howls of outrage and volleys of complaints from Israel's staunch friends and PR agents here in Canada, McDonald's piece failed to cite a recent and highly relevant report on the Israeli apartheid question by Richard Falk, former United Nations rapporteur on human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories, and Virginia Tilly, professor of political science at Southern Illinois University. The UN's Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia had commissioned the report, which Falk and Tilly produced independently. For a brief moment, the Falk-Tilly report was available at the UN website. Then it was taken down. The chair of the UN committee that had commissioned the report resigned in protest. Not surprisingly, Richard Falk and Elizabeth Tilly's report, entitled 
Israeli practices towards the Palestinian people and the question of apartheid has received very little mainstream media attention. I reached Professor Richard Falk in Turkey. Can you provide me uh, with a little brief background on the report, uh, how it came to be commissioned, and then uh, dive into the substance of the report? Uh, your, your, Your views and those of Professor Tilly regarding the, the the substance of the question whether or not Israel practices apartheid. Well, the report arose because uh, these foreign ministers that represent these 18 uh, governments that are members of ESQA, which stands for Economic and Social Commission uh, for West Asia, uh, requested the Secretariat of that commission uh, to uh, inquire, to commission a report that inquired into the allegation that Israel was an apartheid state. And the uh, people in uh, ESQA contacted me and I suggested doing the report jointly with uh, Virginia Tilly they probably contacted me because I had been previously the special rapporteur for human rights violations in occupied Palestine. Uh, and so that, uh, but it was always understood that this was an independent report. It was not a UN report and that um, it would be uh, undertaken within the domain of academic uh, research and analysis, and, and we tried as best we could to adhere to that kind of orientation. Uh, as far as the uh, substance of the report is concerned, uh, there are two things that should be noted uh, initially. It isn't so unusual to refer to Israel as imposing an apartheid regime on uh, the West Bank. A lot of uh, Israelis, including leaders going uh, way back of Eva, said uh, we, we risk apartheid or are engaged in apartheid in the manner in which we govern um, the West Bank. And that uh, 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 goes all the way back to David Ben-Gurion, who's worried about this. And then since the occupation in 1967, it's been a frequent internal theme in Israel. But if anyone externally, especially a person with high visibility, uh, says the same thing, they get pilloried and accused of anti-Semitism and the like. Jimmy Carter is the most uh, obvious example where he gave the title of, of his book, which was basically very sympathetic to Israel, but he called the book Peace or Apartheid. And that kind of sense that Israel either had to accept the establishment of a Palestinian state or uh, because of the demographics involved, it would eventually... Uh, be perceived to be a an apart uh, operating as an apartheid regime at least uh, in occupied Palestine. 
What was uh, distinctive in our report was that we were looking at this question not from the perspective of territory, but from the perspective of people and uh, the Palestinians as a people. And therefore, we considered not only the conditions that they were uh, subject to in the West Bank, but also in Jerusalem as a minority in Israel uh, and as refugees and involuntary exiles. And in each of these domains, as we called them in the report, we found a deliberate uh, series of discriminatory and exploitative uh, policies and practices, which maybe if you looked at one domain in isolation, one wouldn't draw the conclusion that this is an apartheid state. But if you look at all all four of these principal domains as a coherent, tactic to maintain uh, the uh, continuity or the, or the uh, perhaps be- better put, the hegemony of Israel as a Jewish state governing a Palestinian people who regarded the uh, country as their theirs. It presupposes uh, the use of force based on ethnic identity, which according to the apartheid convention is interpreted as uh, the difference between uh, peoples of the sort that Jews and Palestinians are. In other words, it's an ethnic category. It doesn't require differences in color as in South Africa, and it doesn't require that the crime of apartheid uh, is in any uh, significant sense, resembles the regime that operated in South Africa and Can is you, the origin of the crime. <clears throat> I'm wondering, Professor Falk, if you can go into some of the, the details on, on, on how Israel exercises domination over the Palestinian people in, in, these, in these four separate domains. There are indeed four separate and distinct sets of laws uh, governing uh, uh, to, to which uh, people in the West, the Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem within Israel proper, the Gaza Strip are, and indeed uh, in diaspora, are, are, uh, um, are subject to. Can you go into, into the details of these four domains? Uh, yes, of course, the report itself, that, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, a complex discussion, and it is the uh, body of the report itself. Uh, as I said, the dual legal structure in the West Bank is uh, pretty clear, where the uh, uh, Jewish settlers uh, have the benefit of the rule of law, and the uh, Palestinian residents are subject to a subject to military administration and have no rights and this uh, structure has persisted now for uh, 70 years with no end in sight so and and that time dimension is part of the uh, conclusion 
that this structure was uh, deliberately imposed as a way of uh, solving the puzzle that Israel had from the beginning, which is how do we, uh, how can we be both a uh, Jewish state and a democratic state in a society where we were for uh, in if you take Palestine as a whole where where Jews were a, a started off as a rather small minority so that that's one of the explanations of how this structure uh, uh, emerged and how the policy was one of needing to dispossess a substantial number of people. Otherwise, uh, Jews would have, even after World War II, and after the influx of refugees from uh, Europe, uh, Jews would still have been a minority in Palestine, and therefore the Zionist commitment to both democracy and uh, a Jewish state could not have been uh, satisfied. Uh, and so, therefore, in the, 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 there was the need to figure to have some way of uh, subjugating the Palestinian people, not as a whole, because that wouldn't that would have defied the uh, objective of being a democratic state. It, it was necessary. The fragmentation of the Palestinians was intrinsic to this uh, policy of uh, domination and discrimination. And the uh, Apartheid Convention, again, uh, which we uh, relied upon as the legal foundation, uh, makes it a, makes Apartheid a crime based on the commission of inhuman acts and the uh, dispossession of people from their uh, place of residence for generations and the destruction of their villages, the whole uh, Nakba story, uh, qualifies in our mind as inhuman acts. The Israel, the, per, perhaps the most difficult of these four domains is the uh, Palestinian minority inside Israel, 20% of the overall population, because those uh, individuals do have citizenship, do vote, can have members of parliament, but they have, they're subject to something over 50 uh, discriminatory nationality laws. Israel distinguishes internally between citizenship, which is equal for everyone, and nationality laws. And the most uh, dramatic of these nationality laws has to do with the right of return, where Jews from any place in the world with no prior connection whatsoever to, to Israel have a right of uh, immigration, whereas Palestinians, even if they have the deepest imaginable roots inside uh, Israel have no right of return, not even for purposes of family unification.
Can you run through some of the other laws? I know there's something like 30 or 40 within Israel proper that uh, that differentiate between Jews and Palestinians, and upon that basis, therefore, your your presumption of of a system of apartheid. What are some of these laws? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not. I haven't um, thought about them or considered them in quite a long time. They relate to. Uh, uh, restrictions on uh, ownership and residence, uh, ownership of property and residence that is quite, uh, in effect, segregates uh, Israel uh, in, in rather rigid ways, and they have to do with a lot of things connected with family law uh, in terms of uh, uh, reunification of families, uh, rights, uh, loss of uh, residence rights, and uh, a whole series of things that uh, pertain to uh, uh, the normal range of activities in life. I think also they can't serve in the military, and uh, they can't hold certain kinds of offices in the government. They can't uh, advocate uh, the end of Israel as a Jewish state. They can't challenge the Jewish identity that has been claimed for Israel. So going through these four domains, therefore, we've talked about the West Bank br briefly. We've talked about Israel proper. How about East Jerusalem and Gaza? Gaza is um, uh, continues to be subjugated. See, the, the essence of our claim is one of structures of domination and subjugation that uh, are discriminatory in their economic, political, and social effects. So it, it, it doesn't rest on, it rests on the fact of uh, Israeli or Jewish domination of Palestinians in East Jerusalem and in uh, Gaza, and in each of those cases, uh, again, there are a lot of technical uh, restrictions on Palestinians in East Jerusalem connected with residence, building permits, and uh, mobility. And in Gaza, the uh, uh, it's virtually a uh, what has been called by sometimes even by European leaders, I believe David Cameron, among others, as an open-air prison. It, it, people can't leave or enter uh, except with very elaborate uh, procedures of um, uh, permission from Israel. They can't even leave for medical emergencies or educational opportunities. It is uh, a structure that uh, confines and subjugates in a extremely oppressive way and has done so for a very long time. Has your report, uh, your and, and Professor Tilly's report, been submitted to the International Criminal Court? Uh, no, no it hasn't, but uh, w we've been told that the uh, latest submission, there's a recent submission uh, by the Palestinians to the International Criminal Court that raises the question 
of apartheid. We don't know what the evidence they rely upon or whether they follow our conceptual framework for uh, developing this issue. What we have noticed is that within the UN and within academic uh, conferences and discussions, there's been a much more, a much greater, what I would call, normal, maybe mainstreaming of the apartheid discourse as part of how to interpret and understand the present stage of the relationship of the two peoples. And also the um, uh, implication that the way to, the path to peace, and this has always been uh, one of my main uh, reasons for uh, choosing this manner of talking, that the path to peace for both peoples is not ending the occupation, but ending apartheid. So when you talk about this being this idea being mainstreamed within the United Nations, can you uh, can you uh... well maybe mainstream is is a bit exaggerated. What I mean is that it it has a certain it doesn't it doesn't really have a shock effect except for uh, highly politicized uh, representatives such as the U.S. and uh, Israel itself. Uh, it it's discussed informally and formally uh, with uh, much more normalcy than was the case five years ago or ten years ago. How do you see this this, this situation of, of putative apartheid or actual apartheid evolving now that the uh, all, all hope of a, of a Palestinian or truly sovereign Palestinian state being formed kind of evaporating? Um, the two-state solution. Well, as I say, I think the. I agree with you. I agree with the premise of your question, uh, and to me, the only way for the two peoples to live in peace with one another in a sustainable manner is for Israel to abandon the claim of being a Jewish state and to uh, dismantle the uh, apartheid uh, structures. But I think that, to that, treat the, that two, the two peoples have to be treated equally. But I suppose that will come about as the result of the uh, the final uh, collapse of of the the peace the quote unquote peace process realization by by really everybody that there will never be a a sovereign separate Palestinian state that there's just one single state there really is at the moment at this moment there really is only one state. Exactly, yes. And the question is, will that one, uh, one... I mean, Netanyahu, to some extent, wants to keep the status quo without uh, uh, making that uh, leap from the Palestinian territories as occupied to Palestinian territories as incorporated within greater Israel. The, but the... the the Israeli political parties and forces to the right of Netanyahu are moving increasingly and explicitly towards saying, we've won the conflict, we've prevailed over the Palestinians, we've won, they've lost, and we should establish a single greater Israel. 
and that would be undoubtedly uh, some sort of apartheid state on steroids in the beginning. Uh, yes, no question that the only way that that state uh, could exist, uh, and it would mean pretty much the abandonment of uh, democracy, the pretension of, uh, you know, Israel still is called the only democracy in the Middle East, which is not, uh, in my judgment, uh, warranted, but uh, if this kind of one state was formalized under Israeli control, then it would involve, as some prominent Israelis have acknowledged, the abandonment of uh, constitutional democracy. It would look a little bit more like what existed in South Africa. Final question, Professor Falk. Thank you very much for your time. Does, does, does this report of yours and Professor Tilley's uh, Israeli practices towards the Palestinian people and the question of apartheid, does it, uh, uh, to, to be colloquial, does it have legs? Is it, uh, is, is it circulating within the halls of discussion of the United Nations? Is it having some influence on, on the discussion? Uh, as I say, I think it is, actually. I think it, it, uh, it was the most widely read report by something like a thousand percent on the part of Esquire, even though uh, the Secretary General of the UN uh, re uh, required its removal and removal from the website. And it has been uh, very widely uh, discussed in academic settings. Uh, it is, uh, I think, influenced the way more objective diplomats see the situation uh, from within the UN. It has not modified the geopolitics that has uh, sort of dominated the uh, policy process in North America and Europe, and, and, and there's no uh, prospect that that policy prospect, process or policy consensus is likely to be uh, modified. The, these governments uh, in, uh, continue to talk about a two-state solution and the need to get the parties to negotiate as if that's a plausible scenario. So when the dealing in a very peculiar kind of atmosphere where uh, diplomacy has reached a dead end, yet it's not acknowledged, and uh, the realities are either the status quo or enough pressure is generated from uh, global solidarity movements and Palestinian resistance to lead Israel, Israeli public opinion to make an abrupt shift in the in a direction of saying we'd rather live as a constitutional democracy with the equality of the two people than have this uh, pressure on our society indefinitely. And that's what essentially happened in South Africa, symbolized by the release of Nelson Mandela, something that was totally unexpected until it happened and a real reversal of 
uh, outlook by the Africana elite that had been governing the country. Thank you so much, Professor Falk, for your time. Uh, good. Good talking with you, and I hope we covered the ground you had in mind. Richard Falk is research fellow at the Orphalet Center of Global and International Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and Albert G. Milbank, Professor of International Law and Practice Emeritus at Princeton University. Professor Falk was the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territories from 2008 to 2014. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next week at this same time. Bye-bye.